Hello, my name is Matt Barr. You're listening to episode 51 of the Looking Sideways Action Sports podcast. It's my show where I try and uncover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for tuning in and listening to this one, which definitely falls under the and other related endeavours caveat this week, which is because my guest for episode 51 is Hanley Prinsloo. Now, if you don't know Hanley, she's a free diver and an ocean advocate. But that doesn't do anything like justice to the sheer depth and generosity of her vision. Along with her partner, Peter Marshall, she runs the I Am Water Foundation. Now, I'm not going to try and explain that work in detail, as in our chat, Hanley does a way better job than I'll ever manage. But yeah, this has been a long time coming, this one. We first chatted over email and WhatsApp back in summer 2017 about Hanley coming on on the Looking Sideways podcast. And then again earlier this year, and for a variety of reasons, it didn't quite work out. But happily in July 2018, we found ourselves in St. Agnes, Cornwall at the same time. We were there for Ocean Plastics Solutions Day, which was an event put on by our mutual friends at Finisterre and Surfers Against Sewage. And uh, yeah, that was a great event. Actually, I do implore you to check that out on the Finisterre and SAS websites. Anyway, the next day we met up and after taking part in a breath holding exercise that Hanley um, oversaw for the Finisterre and SAS workforces, which was amazing. She got us to hold our breaths for two and three minutes in about 20 minutes, I reckon. Yeah, after that, we finally sat down to it. And uh, I'm glad we did because I know I say every single episode, but this is yet another hugely inspiring conversation. And there are familiar themes, which I think people that are regular listeners are going to recognize that um, our old friend imposter syndrome makes an appearance. The corrosive uh, power of self-imposed pressure makes an appearance. But there are also true moments of wonder, more importantly, as Hanley describes some of the transformative experiences she's had in the ocean with some of our planet's biggest creatures. Um, wondering what I'm on about? Well, you know, I know I say this every week as well, but if there's ever any episode where you should go and check out the show notes at my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. It's this one. Suffice to say, one of those show notes is the sophistication of dolphin communication. And then there's the imagery that I got from Hanley and Peter, which really does have to be seen to be believed. So go and check it out. Anyway, as I think you're going to discover, Hanley's a consummate communicator and storyteller. I'd go as far as to say, actually, she might be the best pure communicator I've yet had on the show, which is really saying something given the calibre of guests I've been lucky enough to speak to. So yeah, we get right into her work for Iron Water. We discuss her work on ocean, ocean conservation. We chat about her career as a free diver. It's inspiring stuff. And I really do uh, urge you to check out the work Hanley and Peter are doing with Iron Water. So yeah, there we go. Enjoy this one. Big thanks to Hanley and Peter for being such great sports. Hope you will enjoy it. Here is my chat with Hanley. Enjoy. I'm with Hanley. How you doing? Good. We 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 did it. We finally sorted it out after. What, how long have we been? I think it's been over a year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And we've we've kind of nearly made it work a couple of times, haven't we? I had to come to Cornwall. Yeah, and we f- we find ourselves in the same place. And uh, yeah, so how's it been? How's your trip? Good. This is the end of a two-month round-the-world trip of speaking and events and diving expeditions and finishing off here at Finister in Cornwall and heading home soon back to Cape Town. And this is your first trip down here, right? Even though you've got quite a long association with these guys. Yeah, I was down a few years ago um, on a very, very short whistle stop 
and um, okay. this is the first time I've met the whole team down here and actually been able to engage. So it's been wonderful. Yeah. And you just took us through, um, what would you call that, like a, a breath workshop this morning? Yeah. So it's kind of an amalgamation of a lot of what I teach on longer courses. Yeah. But this morning, um, what you did was more just a focus on lung stretching, some awareness around breath, and then experiencing the, the dive reflex, understanding how your body responds to breath hold. So this is what one of the things I found really fascinating about that. So I just said this before we started recording, like it, it seems that your body has these abilities, natural um, functions, if you like, the, the dive reflex obviously being the, the main one in your work that that exists but we don't really know about is that is that kind of fair to say i think that it's an interesting thing science that the research that's been done on the human body and breath hold almost feels like it happened very recently but a lot right. of that's been because it's it's really hard to research right unless you have a a, a data set of free divers who are happy to you know have their their blood taken and their their spleen observed and they're this and they're that and so all the way through my competitive free diving career i've had you know scientists poking and prodding and looking at what what one's body's doing because yeah. it's not that easy to to do this kind of on re, of research um on the human body and so a lot of it is is quite recent and and i think quite significant right because we consider ourselves to be such an incredibly terrestrial species and so connected to any and all terrestrial cousins of primates and other things and we actually forget this very strong connection yeah. we have to the ocean. Well, I don't think people even consider it really in day-to-day -day life, do they? No, I, I find that they don't. Um, you know, we take breathing for granted and breathe quite badly because of it because the body follows the path of least resistance and so we, you know, just kind of go along using very little of what our body can actually give us yeah and even when we surf or swim or whatever it is like commune with with the water it, you try to stay on top of it aren't you you're trying to you're trying to sort of fight the fact that you might go underwater and and have to hold your breath almost in a lot of ways and that's what was really interesting like hearing you talk yesterday and from the little bit I've read about free diving, like the fact that we do have this mammalian dive reflex that is in Bill and that, that enables us to cope in that environment. So could you could you explain that for, for like sure. people listening that might not know what that is? Yeah, so the, the mammalian dive response is something that exists in whales and dolphins and seals and it's what allows a breather to go so deep underwater and hold their breath for so long. Um, I mean, if you take into consideration that something like a sperm whale can dive down to three kilometers deep and hold its breath for over an hour, and you know, Waddell and elephant seals dive much, much deeper than we ever thought and hold their breath for over half an hour. And you know, all these, they are still breathing mammals, right? So they have to have something that helps them dive deep. And the, the later research that's been done now shows that the, the human body has the has the same. So the mammalian dive response consists of a few different elements. The first and most obvious one being called bradycardia, brady slowing down cardio of the heart rate. And it's as soon as your face touches water, your heart rate slows down dramatically. And this, of course, is the body's response and the body's plan, I guess, to conserve oxygen. Yeah. So that when your face touches water, your body realizes we're underwater, your heart rate slows down and you use less oxygen. Is that is that the feeling that you you know when you get in the cold shower and water hits your face, the way that you react, is that is that is that kind of that? I don't think you actually have a physical 
experience of it. Okay. I think it's more just happens happens in your body. Right. Because I almost feel like that kind of cold water moment, like same as jumping in cold water without a wetsuit on, I actually feel like it, it spikes my heart rate and it like yeah. you know it's almost like <gasps> kind of experience. Yeah, yeah. So um but whether or not one has that kind of experience, the amazing thing is your body does just slow it down. Yeah. Um, so that's the first one, bradycardia. And then the, the second one is vasoconstriction. And that's the constricting of the blood vessels in your arms and legs to basically redirect your blood flow in a way to push it back up to the core. So to pump blood to your brain and the oxygen from your lungs that still remains to be pumped to your brain so that you stay oxygenated where you need it. So it's a centralization of remaining oxygen. And um, the way I explain it is it's it's a sensation. You can feel it in your limbs when you're holding your breath and it feels like your um, your wetsuit just got three sizes too small. <laughs> like right. the squeezing in your arms and legs. Yeah. And then um, the spleen response is to me one of the most fascinating because I mean the spleen is an organ that gets so little airtime, and um, yeah you know you can even it's not the glory organ no it's a low glory organ yeah. I usually call it exactly like everybody you know talks about the the liver and the brain and the and even the kidneys can be traded in but nobody yeah. speaks about the poor, poor spleen no and you can actually live quite successfully without a spleen, as one knows from car accidents and hemorrhaging um, internally. And the reason is because the spleen is quite spongy. Right. So if it has an injury, it actually can't be sewn back together. But it's also the sponginess that gives it the functionality that we in freediving are so grateful for. And it's that the spleen being part of the endocrine system, yeah, to keep it really simple, there's storages of oxygen-rich hemoglobin in the spleen. And when we hold our breath or dive deep and the body notices these rising levels of um, carbon dioxide in the system as your body's using oxygen, the spleen constricts and releases this oxygen-rich hemoglobin into your bloodstream. And this is, of course, wonderfully beneficial if you're functioning on one breath and you need all the oxygen you can get. It's like yeah. an extra injection of oxygen into the system. And um, this research was initially done on Weddell and elephant seals on their very enlarged spleens. And just a couple of weeks ago, a paper was published on um, research being done on the sea gypsies and seeing that they have an enlarged spleen. So this is something that can happen in humans as well right. over generations to so actually... That would have evolved as yep. through the through their culture, basically. Absolutely, because okay. of spending so much time underwater. In the same way, you know that um, some of the Moken and other people can see twenty twenty underwater. Yeah, okay. something I'm so jealous about. <laughs> yeah, well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because it's just like you say, adaptation in action over generations, like right there. And I think it's both adaptation, but maybe also not having lost it. Right. Because I mean, if one, you know. Yeah. Okay, that makes more sense when you frame it like that. Yeah, that I think for for most of us, it's more that we, for generations, step away from water and then forgot forget that we have this connection. Yeah. And our bodies actually remember it, and cultures that have remained close to the ocean remain connected and keep having these adaptations. You know, so the Mokan people, Polynesians, you know, with their incredible skills of spearfishing and you know running on the seabed with a spear and yeah. hunting that way the pearl diving ama divers in japan and their adaptations where you know in that culture only the women dive um sponge divers in the mediterranean you know there's these old free diving cultures where yeah i think we kind of have to evolve back to that physical 
adaptation to the ocean, but cultures who have never left the sea have never lost it. Well, I guess you could say that about our relationship with nature in general, couldn't you really, as, as a species, you know, in recent times. There's there's obviously been a move away from that natural connection in almost every way, really, hasn't there? You know, as we've as we, our lifestyle has changed to to the way we live now. Yeah, I think there's been like a very sad development in the last, you know, hundred years that nature's been seen as something dirty and something yeah. we have to tame. You know, so a this threat. yeah, so this kind of like, um, you know, building roads and pavements and all the urban environments we now take for granted to get away from the mud and to get away from the dirt and to get away from yeah dirty nature in yeah. a way and there's been some shocking shocking research done um about how kids feel about nature and so many of them saying it's dirty and i don't like it yeah and to me that's heartbreaking i grew up on a on a horse farm outside johannesburg and to me nature is it's it's not even a topic to be discussed. It's such an obvious necessity. Yeah. And I notice so much how how I don't do well when I'm not connected to and I mean I'm being I'm such an ocean person, ocean lover, but you know, I love being in the mountains, I love being by rivers, I love being in any wild wild nature. I have the same the same feeling. And I think it's really sad that we we lose that. And um I think we're at a time now where we desperately need to reconnect with that. Yeah, is that? It seems to be a thread. I'm going to call it your work, for want of a better phrase. But for the different things that you do, that seems to be a really common theme. Is that is that a conscious thing to try and give people the opportunity to to break down that barrier that exists? Definitely. Um, yeah, my my experience, you know, coming out of high school in in South Africa during the apartheid time, and then. Having grown up on the farm, kind of isolated with a belief system that was purely my parents and not that one of the time and the politics of the country I grew up in, I had different views on things. I've always had, I think, my own views on things and that's how I was raised, you know, yeah. even in a time when everybody had a certain viewpoint, my parents raised us to think differently and I'm very grateful for that because it's definitely informed how I do I do my work. And then getting into competitive freediving and traveling around and doing a lot of ocean exploration and seeing both the beauty and the destruction in our in our oceans i wanted to be involved in preserving and exploring and mostly saving what's left so i did like a sweep you know and thinking well what do i want to be involved in and explored other organizations you know some organizations focusing mainly on science research and campaigning um, like WWF and all the good work they do in that, and then yeah. organizations like Greenpeace and Sea Shepherd that are a lot more militant and activist-minded and species-specific or topic-specific. And none of those were really my... None of those really felt authentic to my way of connecting yeah. and my way of sharing stories. At the time, I was working as a documentary filmmaker on social political issues. Okay. Um, and... What I was missing in the conservation landscape, I guess, organization-wise, was something focused purely on reconnecting, purely on seeing change happen and good behavior change for conservation and for protection happening through deep connection and transformation. And um, that's what compelled me to start I Am Water. And I Am Water 
in its name already is very inclusive and yeah. very, you know, we are all water. <laughs> and so it even transcends oceans. You know, it's, it's about our connection with the natural inside of us and something we all share. It's not an elitist. It's not some have it and some don't. We are all that. Um, yeah, and so that's 2010. I, I started I Am Water and really started, um, I guess, ideating around this concept of deep connection and how to both communicate and facilitate that because that's the challenge it's it's obvious in the facilitation but also how do you communicate yeah. that um so how did you solve that i think f for me it's it's an it's an ongoing an ongoing journey but i think it's been very much around personal sharing of personal experiences yeah um and so for example the talk i did yesterday here at the ocean plastic solutions day in Cornwall was very much, you know, sharing personal experiences I've had with the ocean, um, with animals that are very anecdotal and vivid and trying to really bring people into that picture. Yeah. So of course, and what I'd love to do is take every single person I meet and take them into the ocean and give them an experience. But if I'm doing a talk, I want them to feel that, you know, and to really feel that experience and even just doing the short exercise and meditations I do in the breath work, connecting them to their body and through that connecting them with, you know, the oxygen we breathe that comes from the ocean and that ocean connection. So in the communication of it, I keep working on that and the photographs we take and the films we do. It was really fascinating that yesterday because, because I mean, the talk was really moving and you could see that people were moved. And also you could see when you did make people do that really brief breathing exercise that at first people were a bit like, oh, you know what what's this like what are we going to do you know and then they obviously like accepted it really quickly um and that almost gave a bit of an emotional connection as well really mm. is that quite a common response that you find yeah it is and i find that you know people generally get so much so in their heads yeah and um especially i mean this is a different kind of of conference but you know i speak with private banks investment banks right. big corporations big industry leaders and i do the same with them you know and it's it's um and initially like you say they're like well this is uncomfortable i don't yeah. want to do this i don't yeah. know we're going to do something physical i don't want to uncross my legs i don't want to close my eyes you know um but they do they do accept it and get into it really quickly and then I think just connecting with your breath and correcting with your body helps you to be more open-minded and to really hear a message of things that might be something you haven't considered before. Um, yeah, and so in the communication for me, it really is helping people find that personal connection and then and then sharing my stories and my experiences and making it relevant for them. So always bringing it back to not just what experience I've had, but what I learned or experienced through that that's a more general of general importance or something that everyone can connect with yeah so uh, so what kind of work are you doing yeah so the foundation is called i am water ocean conservation and yeah. it's a non-profit and currently most of our projects are in south africa we've okay. done a few pilots and other projects around the world but we've really pulled back and used our projects in cape town as our yeah really refining our reach and what what we do and um my experience coming back, I studied, I studied abroad. I studied in Sweden for, for seven years and then moved back to South Africa after, yeah, seven, eight years in Sweden. Right, which is where you first um, 
started freediving. Free that's right. right. Yeah, I started which freediving. Really surprised me when I when I was researching this because I always just for some reason assumed you would have started when you were a, a kid in I know, in South Africa. But I didn't because I grew up so far from the ocean. So I grew yeah, up, course, you know, yeah. on the horse farm outside Johannesburg, and yeah. the closest ocean. You know, we'd go on beach holidays, but my parents weren't. I guess seafaring enough to put us on boats or boards or you know so it was very much like a play on the beach play in the waves dive under the waves sure. but on the farm I was lucky that we had you know two dams a river and a swimming pool right <laughs> and my so sister and I were always holding our breaths and diving down and terrifying my mom disappearing under the brown water and the farm dams and I mean there were only like you know bobble and cops and things in there but yeah. we had our we had our adventures and so when I moved back from, oh, so when I was in Sweden, I met this um, freediver who was early in his journey as well. And we started training together and I started competing and did a lot of my training in the fjord. Was that the first Sweden. collection then, meeting this guy? Yeah. So that yeah. was the first time you even considered first it? First time. I mean, he even, when he said to me, have you tried freediving? And in Swedish, freediving is freedikning. And I was like, <laughs> is this a... You try to pick me like, up. <laughs> no, well, I was like, is this is this a translation issue because <laughs> nothing here is free what is he talking about this free diving i thought he must be talking about scuba diving which i had tried and didn't find that amazing so i was like right. what is this and then he explained to me it's like it's holding your breath and going as deep as you can on one breath and ev immediately my ears just perked up and i was like this is what i was dreaming of as a little girl you know right, like okay. being a mermaid and going underwater so as soon as I heard about it, I was hooked. And then we went out into the fjord and it was ice cold and dark. And I was just, my wetsuit didn't fit, my mask was fogging up. And still, it was one of my best experiences and kind of shaped my whole life. And I was 19 at the time, so it was early. Did you recognize that as, a, as, as such a significant moment then? Not at all. Right. Not at all. I just thought, well, this is something fun to get me through the Swedish winters, you know, training in the pool in winter and yeah. then getting to the fjord in summer and kind of like also finding my tribe and a bit of a community sure. in, in a foreign country. So it meant a lot to me already then, but I don't think I realized how much, you know, I, at that point, my heart was set on being a documentary filmmaker and a right. social political and that, storyteller. Is that, is that what you were that And that's what I was studying and yeah. doing. And, um, this makes sense, though, in the way that you do communicate then. Yeah. So it was, you know, really focused on telling stories in a way that will compel people to pay attention. Yeah. And that's, you know, coming from a background of growing up in South Africa in the in the 80s. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd seen enough and experienced enough and, like I said, you know, thought independently enough to realize I want to tell different kinds of stories to yeah, what well, people expect. There was one story being told them wasn't there really oh yeah and um yeah so that's so being brought up in that era and and that was something that you actively wanted to explore different ways of telling mm. stories as a result of that then basically definitely mm -hmm. and so um moving back from sweden to south africa i was just appalled at how um few people really had access to nature in south africa and i thought this was and it is but I thought it was unique to South Africa, which I then had to revise. But I really had this, you know, shocking experience of just seeing that communities are living within walking distance of, of the ocean and the kids have never been to the beach and they don't know what's underwater and they don't understand um, how their actions impact the ocean. And, you know, in the apartheid era, beaches were for whites only. Yeah. And experiences were very segregated. And I immediately realized this is something I want to 
be a part of changing. And so sharing with my freediving experience, you know, I started taking kids to the ocean and taking them snorkeling and getting them engaged. And 2010, I started the the nonprofit Iron Water to really be able to work as a vessel for that. But okay. it was a long, it was many years of actually figuring out how to do it properly yeah, sure. and how to do it in a way that's transferable. Um, for a long time, I was stuck in that, you know, founder's trap of <laughs> if I'm not there physically doing it, someone's going to die, yeah. you know, and then you become the bottleneck and your organization can't grow because that's you think you're integral, that, isn't it? you're integral to the achievement of the goals and and you know in in the work we do it's not completely untrue because there are risks involved taking kids who can't swim into the ocean for the first time and taking them snorkeling and even free diving and stuff and it actually took meeting peter who's now my been my partner for for six years both in life oceans and underwater exploration and his background being as a competitive swimmer on the u.s team and then right. part of the los angeles county lifeguards he actually looked at what we were doing and said, of course we can train people to do this. Of course this is transferable. We just have to create the right curriculum for coaches, create a curriculum for what we do with the kids and teach trainers how to do that. And I was so <laughs> incredibly intimidated by this idea that I was like, well, then you do it. Right. And he actually in the last um, couple of years have taken over a lot of the running of the, of the foundation and created curriculums both to train trainers and how these trainers then train the kids that... Right just in the last year we've been able to scale our projects hugely and have much greater reach and the way we work is we build relationships with the schools that are in desperately low come low income communities so the townships and squatter camps around around cape town is where we've really sunk our teeth into now and building relationships with schools that are within five kilometers of the ocean so okay. they're literally walking distance to the sea such a simple thing yeah but you know the fact that it didn't exist before is yeah you know you casually said that earlier like uh, well beaches in a part of south africa were white only it's, it's so horrifying mind-boggling to actually think about that it was 30 yeah. years ago yeah and so that access was was denied on a regulation level. And what I've realized traveling is that in many places, the access isn't denied on a regulation level, but it's still not accessible. On a cultural level. Not just cultural, sometimes I think even just opportunity or support. Right. You know, I mean, Something that Peter's we take experience very for working, as working as in Los Angeles as a lifeguard. And then, you know, his first day lifeguarding, he came home and he's like, I just rescued six people today and all of them live in Los Angeles and these are kids from the inner city parts of Los Angeles who've never been to the beach and don't know how to behave and don't know how to behave yeah. don't understand rip currents they're wearing jeans the water's cold so they think they should keep wearing their jeans yeah because the water's cold sure and they just get pulled down and you know you get this transgenerational fear of the ocean because yeah. everybody's half drowning when they get the opportunity to go to the sea and well, then well that's what I was going to say about the apartheid decision it's like one decision but the cumulative you know out outflow like if you know mm. i mean the effect of that that, that, that filters down yeah. and, and has long-term behavioral yeah. as you're talking about consequences yeah. and then i realized that 
So South Africa, you can pin it on the apartheid era, but in the rest of the world that hasn't had that, yeah. I see the same disconnect. Sure. We've done pilot projects in Ecuador. We've done projects in the Maldives. We've done projects in Mozambique. Right. We, you know, now looking into Miami and Los Angeles, even chatting to some people about here in the UK, where it's like there are communities who are not far from the ocean they where there is interact. no access. Yeah. And so I've had to shift and we've actually had a big project in Bermuda, for example, which is like, you know, a tiny island in the middle of the Atlantic. And I've actually had to shift my my idea of privilege because for me, privilege was always the way I perceived it in the apartheid era where, you know, opportunities were given to whites and not to blacks. And so you had poverty. And so opportunity and privilege is always, not always, but in my mind, measured in income inequality, right? And then in Bermuda, you know, working with, public schools you know where one little girl got off the boat and said to her friend don't drop my bag my ipad's in there and i thought oh is this really our demographic right you know i mean these kids all have you know devices and whatever they're not poverty stricken like the kids we work with in south africa and then when you chat to them you realize okay so she might have an ipad but she comes from a single parent home where there's no time to be spent with the kids in a way that's conducive to well-being and being in nature and you know um privilege now for me is measured in whether children have access to nature and and research has shown it's not just access to nature it's having an adult who spends time in nature with them teaching sharing information and facilitating comfort in nature it's not just there's a field go play yeah yeah it's actually spending quality time with a child in and nature. giving the framework and that's been really interesting studies for us to read to actually understand what our coaches are facilitating because right. it's not just saying but then also giving time for free play and stuff but yeah. really facilitating that experience and so we've really you know drawn on a lot of research that's been done mostly in terrestrial because not much of this work has been done in the ocean yeah which is why I started I'm Water, but the Sierra Club in the US and others have done a lot of research on what happens to kids when they spend time in nature and what happens to their self-esteem, their mental well-being, their ability to adapt. I mean, all these different things that we need in our development. And so we've drawn a lot from that. And now we're actually also on our workshops collecting data together with a, with a postdoc at Stanford to see how the work we're doing yeah. is actually affecting the kids we work with. It's really fascinating that actually, the fact that you instinctively knew there was a need for this, but it's almost taken this this long for you to, to fully understand the need and the purpose and, and, and to create the solution, which is, does that feel quite um, vindicating that you, in, in some way that you kind of, as, as it's going on and becoming more progressive and, and you're seeing it come to fruition Does, is that is that quite nice to sort of see that as it grows yeah maybe if i get the opportunity to take a couple of steps back yeah <laughs> right well there is, that there is that for now i've still got my my head so deep in the detail that that um um but yeah i think i think it really has been um the last couple of years just seeing seeing the response from the schools as well so we decided to work with schools because so many um, wilderness experiences are offered during school holiday time, after school or weekends. And in many low income communities, you'll find that if you work during those out of school times, the first thing that happens is you lose the girls. 
right? Because okay. they're helping in the home. Sure. They're taking care of younger siblings. They're yeah. helping with cooking and cleaning, etc. Um, and my almost at a par of my huge passion for ocean conservation, sharing ocean stories, is um, sharing opportunities for women and girls. Yeah. Because um, we do know by now, all research shows, if we want to solve the world's problems, is educate girls in poor countries. That is the biggest impact you can have, is giving power to, to women and girls. So that's something we were very adamant about, is not losing the, the girls in the workshops. And so we, it takes, you know, not that long to get a principal on board. So we plan meetings with principals, go to the schools, tell them what we do. And the first question the principal asks says is the first thing they say, this sounds amazing. I want to give this to all my students. What does it cost? Right. And then when we tell them that we're a nonprofit that offers this opportunity, we've had principals start crying. Wow. Because they're just so grateful for the opportunity for their students. So we focus on grade sevens because we find that age group 11, 12-year-old is such a great age where they're old enough to really assimilate the information, but they're young enough to want to play and learn and not yeah. be too cynical and blasé sure. about things. Before those uh, those things have become a bit more yeah. f- formed, let's say. And so we discuss with the principal and their, the teachers a time where we can actually take the students out of school. Right. So the bus leaves from the school in the morning and we get them back at the end of the school day so they can take whatever transport they take to get home so it fits into their daily schedule and we bring the kids to the beach we don't have a ocean center or something where we do our teaching indoors it all happens on the beach that was a very specific decision we made so they arrive at the beach um, we do some mindfulness and yoga stretching and breath work with them in a circle on the beach and then we split them into three groups and they cycle through um Oh, we do a short like um, lesson on what they're going to see, what they're going to learn, what the oceans around them are about, etc. And then the three groups are um, rock pools, rock rock pool exploration, and marine biology with a marine biologist, and then um, beach cleanup along the shore and a snorkel group okay. and then they cycle through all three so they get the right. rock pool exploration and chatting to marine biologists and then they get to do the beach cleanup and explore you know what trash is finding its way onto our beaches and then doing the snorkel and the second day we do a similar thing but going deeper into all those topics and talking more about ocean conservation and how their actions you know matter and how to empower themselves etc and then also ocean safety and ocean literacy for them to actually be safe in the water and it's incredible how much you see kids grow in just two days on the beach. And we really feel like the workshops we offer are kind of a catalyst for for confidence and for change. And um, it's been unbelievable. I mean, this, this year we're aiming to have the highest amount of participants ever with over 1,200 kids actually experiencing the workshops in the water. Wow. And then um, through speaking in schools and to all students over 20,000 so we're really really stepping up our our reach this year which has been incredible yeah so one of the things you said earlier that I thought was interesting as well was that you said originally when you first found free diving um, it was very much just a fun thing to do Um, because you am I right in thinking that you were in, in the competition side quite early on was that quite a natural progression then to sort of um, follow yeah, that path? Yeah, 
I think it's I think it's an interesting thing, um, talent. <laughs> right. I think you know I I was so comfortable in the water because I so loved being underwater and so holding you had, my breath. If you like talent early. Yeah, yeah. and so you I were good at it. I was good at it early, yeah. and you know it was early in the sport, so yeah. my amateur talent was already top five women in the world within my first few, you know, months of training. So really, okay. You know, and I think. Where, I do, where, where did that come from then? You know, I did swim at school and. Right. And just the comfort of being underwater, I yeah. think, more than anything, is the being relaxed. It's a real theme of this podcast, actually. Whenever I speak to athletes um, or people such as yourself who've you know achieved success in the field, that that's it's the phrase that keeps coming back up. That sort of skill acquisition, like fun period when you're a kid, and you're not really thinking about mm-hmm. what you do, and you're just enjoying yeah. that experience. Yeah. And how important that is, yes. and and what a grounding that gives yeah. you for when you then eventually, you yeah. Know, suddenly realized that you're top five in the world at freediving mm-hmm. yeah totally so it was that experience so it was that experience and and i think you know i'm grateful for everything competitive freediving gave me but i also do think that sometimes talent is is a double-edged sword you know that just because you're really good at something you think you have to compete in it and, you have to do it yeah and do it at that level but i did and um i competed for over 10 years um training in Sweden, going over to Egypt for depth competitions. And when I moved back to South Africa, still going to Egypt for depth competitions. And and part of it was really enjoyable. Um, All of it was incredibly beneficial for self-growth. Oh my gosh, I've Um, learned my most valuable, most painful, most everything lessons. Well, that must be- In freediving competitions. A a pitiless arena, let's (laughs) say, if you- uh, if you want to find out who you really are. Oh, completely. Yeah. Completely. And also, you know, being such a niche sport, it was it was both tiring and, and expensive to get to competitions as well because there were no sponsors, you know. Sure. So I might, you know, win a competition, but it's left to pay to get there yeah. <laughs> myself, you know. So how did you support that? Was that just through? Through my documentary filmmaking. Okay, so you were doing so that, that was still my That was my job, you right. know. Wow. Um, so you've always been pretty busy. I've, yes. <laughs> yeah, I have been. I have been. I think I have 20 years of accumulated fatigue, but I'm too passionate to yeah. slow down. But it, it's always been incredibly rewarding. And the competitive freediving, it taught me so much about myself, about um, how I respond under pressure, about what, you know, our perceived limitations are, um, understanding the fine balance between our limitations and our capabilities because if you don't in freediving you might kill yourself well another underlying theme of the of the exercise we did this morning was basically you um you know encouraging and what's not it's not even the right word but enabling people to realize that enabling people to say like this this is actually fine you know like you you just don't know what it is but it is fine you know so and even on that like really basic the most basic level so yeah it's I, I thought that afterwards i thought well that's obviously going to be one of the main things you need to to develop right absolutely absolutely and trusting your body and understanding that you know this response we have this mammalian dive response is bigger than our conscious processes half the time yeah. so really trusting that and that was really all of those things were incredibly valuable lessons but towards the end of my competitive career i wouldn't say i was happy right <laughs> you know i think i was I was starting to feel the pressure. I was going for a couple of world records and I put a lot of pressure on myself as well with getting some sponsors on board who really expected certain results. And yeah, I wasn't happy anymore. And I really found um, 
myself losing touch with why I really got into it in the first place. Sure. And it was actually at a world championships, the last one I did in, in Kalamata in Greece in, in 2011, I think it was, that I just decided this is enough, you know, I've, I've, right. I've had enough of this rope <laughs> yeah. and of these expectations and pushing. And it was, it was hard to move, walk away from it because at one point I felt, because I was actually going for a world record during that world championships and it was in the discipline of um, constant weight, no fins, so swimming as deep as possible, breaststroke and back up again. And I had this strange idea <laughs> that unless I break a world record in freediving because all my records would be national and continental and you know second best in the world third best in the world but I hadn't broken a world record I thought if I don't break a world record I'm not going to have the platform I want to advocate for ocean conservation so you I were, need a world record okay, so to you, have a voice yeah so you were you were giving yourself a barrier to get through to achieve what you actually wanted to achieve exactly exactly so so I really put a lot of, of pressure on myself for that. And, and that was in completely self-imposed. Completely self-imposed. Yeah. Nobody told no, me, you no, know, we're not going to book you as a speaker or <laughs> yeah. you're not going to be allowed to advocate that, for ocean conservation that, unless you have a world record in freediving. I mean, who's ever said that? Isn't that fascinating, though? Because that is, that's, I mean, where do you start with that? That's like, <laughs> that's so linked to sort of self-esteem, isn't it? And, completely. And work ethic. And completely. Those, and, 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 and imposter syndrome. Exactly. And all these, you know stupid things that that you um, do put on yourself yeah exactly it's quite a, I'm guessing what were you at this age like mid mid 20s early 20s when you sort of had this realisation late 20s so I mean it's still quite yeah confident yeah oh yeah to, yeah, to yeah. sort of think and like, I'd you know built up a successful documentary company I w I'd finished you know a big um big you know feature length documentary I mean yeah. I'd, I'd, it's not like I didn't know how to achieve success you know yeah. it was just but I think it was just because I felt once I decided to go into ocean conservation I felt like there's so much at stake sure. I have to be the best possible ocean advocate I can be right. and so I should be this world champion I should be this this and I should be this that and you know now I look back at it I'm thinking well, I know so many world champion athletes in different fields who aren't using their voice to advocate for yeah. anything. So it's not like you need to be that to no. be able to, you know, and on the contrary. And so... Were, were you able to um, let that go easily then? That, you know, internal... Um, I can't even think of how to phrase it. It's quite nebulous, isn't it? But, you know, the, just the, the pressures, let's say, that you're putting on yourself. Was that... Was that a dawning realization that you didn't have to do that to yourself mm, it was interesting because that was 2011 that i at this kalamata world championships made this decision to stop competing in 2012 um, i met peter and you know had like the first functional and supportive relationship you right. know <laughs> ever. <That'll help. laughs> in, in 2000 and you know 13 i got some incredibly high level speaking requests right internationally and then 2014 i was selected as one of the world economic forums young global leaders and all these things just it's almost as if when i stop pushing into the wrong you know block of my personality or of my cap capacity or talents everything just opened up yeah and suddenly all these things i've really wanted of being an advocate for ocean conservation you know having a organization that can really create change etc became suddenly the road for that was smooth <laughs> and up. i thought it was it would be the opposite it opened so, up for you. so it really was for me so to answer your question i don't really think it was an easy process it just you know i'm just grateful that 
things happened the way they did and and I could in the flow of it realize that this is working this yeah. is working and and it's not even you know to be completely honest it's not even me making it happen sure you know it's like this um I've done the hard work I've put in the time not trust that it's it's going to come through you know yeah. and that's such a difficult thing to do in general but for me in particular and but it did is it a tendency that you still have did was it did, did you replace free diving and those um with anything else or is it have you do you feel comfortable that you've actually managed to leave that tendency you know behind? i do think that there's something quite special that happens in your <laughs> mid to late 30s with really kind of figuring out priorities and, yeah and what's just feel like it's quite natural doesn't it yeah i think so and and i'm 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 grateful for that um it's quite a relief i found oh god yes <laughs> <laughs> and i must say you know like i think peter has also been an incredibly stabilizing presence in my life in so many different ways you yeah. know i mean he he experienced the epitome of success and failure you know missing the us olympic swim team by four one hundredths of a second oh wow and you know i never experienced that level of commitment to a sport you know he's been swimming his heart out since he was eight yeah and then training in these four-year stints you know for the olympics because in the us i guess it's the same everywhere um you're nothing unless you make the Olympics. Yeah. Disregarding the fact that he won every single Especially world championship like and set eight world records, you know, it's like you're nothing. Wow, really? You, yeah. What was his stroke? Backstroke, wow. fifty meters and a hundred meter sprint, which Amazing. is a lot of underwater, which makes him such a great freediver today. Yeah. And so he had done so much work on um, yeah, identifying tough. what is success, and he'd even worked with counselors as a swimmer on looking at how to be a rounded individual and how to, yeah, just the ideas on reevaluating success and I hadn't really consciously considered those topics before it was just kind of a part of yeah. you know, life and not really like shun a spotlight on those things and so having him you know come into my life and really having those conversations and him pointing out what's true and what isn't when yeah. my mind did like the crazy monkey yeah, <laughs> that yeah. really really helped yeah. because he always was that voice of reason and helping me see what's what's real and what isn't and so I, I think that that really really helped a lot and still does yeah well you need that don't you you need the outside perspective somebody to say especially if you're quite driven you yeah know, you need somebody to just say like no one cares <laughs> exactly you know, exactly just, just calm down oh this is enough you know because yeah. that for me i think that's something i feel and i think it's also when you're a purpose-driven person and you're fighting for you know working for topics that so mean so much it's yeah. easy to feel like i find it really hard to rest yeah because i feel like there's so much to do there's so much to do and there's a time limit and there's so much to do and there's more to do and like do more do more and the more i know the more i want to do and ugh. and so it's so tiring and you know and peter's just like you have to rest yeah. you can't keep going at this rate you know like we have to take a step back and that's incredibly helpful so i'm, I'm guessing then this this kind of epiphany about how competitive freediving wasn't fulfilling you in the same way helped to change your relationship with with freediving and set you on a different path yeah so what did that look like so for me that almost like again comes full circle with how i grew up you know on the on the horse farm and my dad um was a horse breeder and a horse whisperer so from a very early age i had an affinity with animals and, wow. a, and a love of animals and an understanding of relationships with big animals yeah. and an understanding of the intelligence and the kindness and the power of 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 big animals and animals you know and and i think horses was such a great way to learn that um and so 
coming out of competitive freediving, having been given the opportunity to do trips swimming with whales, with mantas, with dolphins, working on various film projects and photography projects, I just realized this is what is truly and deeply fulfilling for me, is right. the opportunity to relive what I've always known and, and learned as a, as a child, this, this understanding and connection with animals. And, um, and I must be honest, the, the experience of swimming with a giant pot of sperm whales or a 16 meter whale shark or, you know, a pot of dolphins that are more playful and entertaining than ever, anything you've ever experienced, that is um, far more rewarding and enjoyable than any record ever was. Of course. So it really did. Even though I feel like the skills I learned in competitive freediving, the full-on physical skills, I mean, how to dive deep, how to hold my breath, how to be good underwater, I now use swimming with, with animals, being able to have the physical capability to be underwater and interact with a big shark and yeah. build that relationship needed for there not to be a risk involved, etc. I'm really grateful for, for the competitive freediving, but nothing compares to what I get to do in the ocean now. Was that because you told the anecdote yesterday about um, swimming with that pod of sperm whales? Is that is that the most transformative experience you've ever had? Because it's it was yeah. so so emotional, even the way you told it, you know. Yeah, no, that was incredible. That was in Sri Lanka with a big pod of sperm whales. When as the adults dived, they um, allowed a baby to stay at the surface, and um, I got to babysit a baby sperm whale, and that was I think because of whales, just their size and their unbelievable intelligence it's quite intimidating yeah because you think they see they see straight straight through us you know so what if they see something in me that i don't even don't like what if they don't deem me worthy you know what if i'm it's this imposter syndrome thing right like what if i'm not as nice as i think i am yeah. you know what if they see the real me and it's not that's, and it's lacking that's quite a proving ground yeah super pot of sperm whales exactly to immerse yourself in that exactly but even before that, uh, my first experience with dolphins was in, in Mozambique. and um, It's fine, it's fine. Um, my first experience with dolphins was in Mozambique and um, we were actually going out for, for rope training and we were on the boat uh, traveling out. And they have a, had a lot of whale sharks in Mozambique at that time as well. And so I'd been swimming with the whale sharks there. And then there's these pods of pods of um, spinner whale, or spinner dolphins. And in Mozambique, un, unlike in Hawaii, the spinner dolphins aren't that playful. And so we were suddenly surrounded by this pod of spinner dolphins. And they were bow riding the boat and playing around the boat. And I said to the skipper, please, can I jump in? Please? And he was like, it's not even worth it. You know, they're just going to swim away. And I put on my my big, you know, monofin, which is the fin that looks more like a mermaid tail or yeah. a dolphin tail. I put on this monofin and I took a breath and I rolled off the boat. Um, I got him to stop the boat and I rolled off the boat and I just took one breath and I was really in like peak shape at the time and I just kicked straight down. And these dolphins like all stopped and turned as if like, what is that? Really? <laughs> you know, who is that? And they started surrounding me. And it was a group of like 30, 40 dolphins. And they started swimming around me like this vortex of dolphins. And they just followed me down. And we swam down to about 30 meters. And just surrounded, the bottom was a 30. And there's just dolphins all around me. We kind of hit the sand and this like ball of like flukes and fins. And, you know, just wow. animals all around me. And I just remember looking into these intelligent eyes, you know, and they were scanning me and clicking and talking to each other. And, you know, what I know now about dolphin 
communication I didn't know then. You know, they have a first name, a family name. When they greet each other, they share their first and family. I mean, it's like unbelievable. But just being in the in the midst of these large, wild, friendly, curious creatures yeah. was such a both thrilling and humbling experience that when I got up to the surface, I mean, I was in tears. I was absolutely in tears. And I just had the sense, you know, looking at these dolphins all around me and they're, you know, these open, their eyes, like just so open and accepting and playful and curious. And I thought, fuck, we don't deserve this relationship with these animals. You know, we capture them, we keep them in the captivity, we hunt them, we hunt whales, we've hunted dolphins and whales, like for as long as humanity has been able to go to sea, like we don't deserve this level of relationship and trust. Well, we don't even know. From these animals. We don't even know know? we have it, most people. And so I remember looking at these dolphins and just having this like sense that I hardly could articulate. And then I wrote it down afterwards when I got off the boat, just the sense of like, I will do anything for these creatures to remain wild and free and for their environment to be able to sustain them. You know, for this, for what I just experienced, I will do anything for this to remain and it was such like a I'd never felt such a sense of such a compelling um, experience it's, it's hard to put into word but I really felt this like I'd never f- felt that I would do anything for this you know I think a lot of people express that about about parenthood like I would do anything to protect my child kind of thing but you know as not having you know had a child or whatever like I'd never had that sense of I would do anything and it was just this like okay wow well then what is anything (laughs) you know well then what would I do then what should I do then and that was kind of I think the the first seed in this journey to building the I am water vision and the I am water idea of sharing that kind of connection like sharing so that people have that sense of I would do anything because then you know when you have that sense because I literally had this feeling of I would die for this wow you know like well then if I can share this I would do anything with it. and then suddenly the idea of you know eliminating plastic products or recycling or eating sustainable fish or you know lightening our carbon footprint suddenly seems kind of easy when you have that sense of connection right that sense of purpose so that really was i think quite a big um big moment and and so it seems like a large part of the the work that you do is um is about giving other people that experience though as well because you because people can can do trips with you can't they they can come away and you can and that's one of the things you try and offer like people Mm. to to try and experience something of that so I found that um, you know having started the the non-profit which you know works particularly with youth in underserved communities still my personal quest of swimming with with big animals and that experience of my own connection with the ocean and understanding this interspecies incredible relationship we can have with underwater creatures because it's different to on land you know if you're in, in a safari you're in a car and even if you're on a walking safari, you know, if you see a rhino, you get behind a flipping bush. Yeah. Because chances there's are... There's still that barrier. There's a barrier. Yeah. Whereas when you're in the water, you know, the whales, the dolphins, the mantas, the whale sharks, they're right there. Yeah. And sometimes within touching different distance, even though we don't advocate touching, I have been touched by animals where yeah, they yeah. choose the touch, they're you know. they're and they want to know you are, yeah. Exactly. So it's a very close connection. So for that personal journey, you know, and Peter taking these incredible underwater photographs, 
as part of my advocating work, you know, speaking at corporations, speaking at conferences, people would come up to me afterwards and say, I want to experience what you do. I want to see that. I want, you know. And then I'm like, well, you have to really figure out the right season. You have to really know how to do free diving. It's really yeah. hard to do that properly. And oh, if you go there, just be careful because most of the operators don't do a good job of how they, you know, run boats around the animals and da da da. And so a couple of years ago, Peter and I, this very, very slow penny dropped. I'm like, yeah. We could do this. We could do it. We could take people, put them in the picture, offer these incredible transformative experience. We could teach the free diving, choose the operators, choose the accommodation, curate an experience that is truly sustainable and truly transformational. And proceeds from those trips can feed into the workshops we do with kids. Brilliant. And so we, we founded I Am Water Ocean Travel, yeah. which is the social mission business that supports the, the foundation. And it's been really fun the last few years also building that business model also to benchmark ocean experiences because there's such a you know growth in the spend your money on experiences not things yeah mentality but with it comes a lot of bad behavior you know there's a lot of really really bad operators out there who chase sure. animals dropping three boatloads of people on one whale shark in the maldives you know hundreds of people around a whale in tonga i mean it's not cool no so we're also really trying to benchmark how to do these interactions sustainably and where to go during what time of the year, which operators to work with. Even destinations, our destinations aren't the most obvious ones, but they're the best ones yeah. for having a truly low impact, no impact, even bringing the kind of tourism that's good for an area into onto the islands or wherever we go. So yeah, that's been really exciting. So we offer these trips for total beginners where we teach free diving, teach yoga, facilitate the swimming with the big animals and we work with dolphins whale sharks manta rays humpback whales sharks you know yeah it's really fun amazing well i'll, I'll link to it obviously so people can can check it please out please do um i need to let you go because you uh want to go for a surf yeah you, you want to <laughs> go for a surf yeah i'm really glad we got to do that that was great thank yeah. you so much for uh, taking the time yeah great to chat with you Matt it's been a long time coming yeah definitely definitely I hope to see you underwater with a dolphin soon well I'd love to <laughs> so that was it that was my chat with Hanley and I really enjoyed it as I think you could probably tell really privileged to catch up with her about her life and career um, as I said at the beginning I do really urge you to check out the work they do with Iron Water and if you like the sound of it and want to contribute, you could do so by taking a trip with Hanley and Peter through their I Am Water Ocean Travel offering. Find all this info at my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. Okay, housekeeping corner. Not a huge amount to report this week. The dog is doing good. He's asleep yet again. He sleep, seems to sleep about 16 hours a day, which is pretty wicked. But yeah, Peg's doing good. Um... More importantly, got a huge response to episode 50 with Ed Lee. As expected, the episode taught the listens and it was really great getting all the messages from everybody who's enjoyed it. And, you know, a lot of congratulations for hitting 50 episodes. So thanks for that. I did notice a flurry of t-shirt purchases and iTunes reviews, um, which is very much appreciated. So thanks all. Speaking of uh, t-shirts, if you have purchased a t-shirt from me, you might have noticed that if you go to the shop tab on my um, www.wearelookingsideways.com website, you end up at my T-Mill page. Well, those guys seem to have noted that I've been shifting a few bits of merch and they've uh, decided to feature me in their blog as one of the T-Mill success stories, which is nice. I will, of course, post that once it's up. 
um obviously a bit of an opportunity to to big up the podcast there um what else okay one for all you early adopters out there but i'm now available on the old smart speakers thanks to the wonder of tuning radio so if you've got alexa one of those amazon dot things you can get me just go to alexa get get on tuning radio and ask it to find the looking sideways podcast and you'll have all the episodes there at your voice operated leisure now last thing to mention i'm idly plotting a trip to california at some point in the near future to take the podcast stateside hopefully bag a load of interviews there i did post about this on instagram and facebook i got a lot of interesting responses so if you do want to join that particular debate then head on over to my insta and facebook and let me know who you think i should interview nice all right that's it back next week as usual with i think it's going to be pete cabrina who is uh i mean he's a legend look him up but he was one of the original jaws crew with led hamilton jerry lopez and all that lot so yeah you know what to expect with that one And he was a lovely fella with some great stories. So that will probably be the next episode. But in the meantime, have a good one. I'll catch you next time. Nice one.